We've had a number of nice comments about our summer series, Majoring in the Minors. Some of these texts, maybe some of these names, books of the Bible that you have never read before. Amy and I have enjoyed dividing the sermon time, trying to do two different but related things. I've tried to help you set the context of the prophet in ancient Israel and to try to help us see how the ancient word is still relevant to us. And Amy has chosen a particular text from that prophet to offer a good pastoral word for the day. We continue that today from the prophet Zephaniah, 600 years before Jesus. So hear these words as an introduction to that prophet. The Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty is an 88-year-old Baptist organization working in our nation's capital. The BJC focuses on religion in the public square, advocating for the causes and cases that intersect our historic Baptist commitments to soul freedom, religious liberty, the separation of church and state. The executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee, Amanda Tyler, is a lifelong Baptist from Austin, Texas, who trained as an attorney in order to defend her Baptist principles. She and the BJC have devoted considerable effort since 2019 to Christian nationalism, combating, fighting, calling attention to Christian nationalism, which took center stage during the January 6th insurrection. Tyler calls this distortion of American Christianity the greatest threat American democracy faces today. Now understand that Christian nationalism is not just Christian people trying to be patriotic. It is an ideology that begins with the dangerous lie that the nation was founded as a Christian nation. Now, it's amazing that such disinformation could gain any ground in an educated country. The words are in black and white. The history is clear. Freedom of religion also means freedom from religion. The government shall not establish nor prohibit the free exercise of religion. The words from the Treaty of Tripoli signed in 1796 by President John Adams, make this about as clear as possible. The treaty begins, the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Case closed. The very impetus for the voyage that brought our dissident pilgrim forebears to Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620 was the explicit desire to escape an established church. The merger of church and state they were experiencing in England. That arrangement was as bad for Baptists as for non-Christians. So the pilgrims sought a land that would allow religious practice, but would be freed from any coercion by the state. Truth, however, truth seems to mean less and less in this country. So despite the absence of any factual basis, the narrative of the Christian founding of the nation persists. For large swaths of the country, just say it loudly enough and keep on repeating it, and it becomes truth. 
no matter how much it lacks fact. Baptists ought to be the first to insist on and celebrate that freedom that our unique freedom of religion allows. But there are members of Congress today who have co-opted the criticism and are now selling t-shirts on their websites proclaiming proud Christian nationalists. Folks, we live in perilous times. Truth is at risk. From that foundation, Christian nationalism continues to merge religion and politics, militarism and economics. The objective is some form of government-sanctioned Christianity that follows a theology of so-called dominionism. This distortion, based on selective proof texts of Scripture, sees the United States of America as uniquely chosen exclusively called by God to do God's bidding in the world, vanquishing the liberals and the elites and the non-Christian heretics in the process. Walter Brueggemann is one of the world's leading scholars of the Old Testament, and he says the crisis in the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or being conservative. It has everything to do with giving up on the faith and discipline of our Christian baptism and settling for a common, generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. Walter Brueggemann's quote might serve as something of a definition of Christian nationalism. And if you wind the clock back 2,600 years, you will find that once again by reading the Minor Prophets, that with the things that matter most in the world, very little has changed. Now, I've spoken a great deal this summer of the geopolitical situation facing Israel in the north and Judah in the south. A 300-year threat from the Assyrian Empire brought final destruction to the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 before Christ. The Assyrians continued to be a threat to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah for another hundred years, but in the early 600s, with the rise of the Babylonian Empire that quelled the threat from Assyria, but before Babylon itself threatened Jerusalem, there was a brief period that seemed a bit peaceful. Between the Assyrian domination and the Babylonian domination, a little bit of peace. And during these quieter years, the nation had a chance to focus. While the prophets were still critical of Israel's neighbors, and most prophets also turned their critique to Israel itself, the moment provided an opportunity for self-reflection. During this era, we encounter another important historical event that you should know in terms of biblical history. Josiah was one of the last kings of Judah before it was overthrown by the Babylonians. And according to the history that we find in both 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings in the Bible, the king, King Josiah, had ordered a renovation of the temple in Jerusalem, which had fallen into disrepair. During the renovation process, the priest in the temple discovered a forgotten book of the law. The scholars disagree on exactly what that was. Was it some version, some early version of the Torah, or was it the book of Deuteronomy itself? But the discovery of this book of the law gave new life to the religious practice of Israel 
seven centuries before Jesus. Enter Zephaniah, a prophet whose ministry was centered in temple theology and the practice of its unique religion. At the heart of Zephaniah's concern was a return to right worship, a purification of the Judaism of his day. Uh, given the, sev the several centuries of Assyrian influence with the incursion of a culture of pagan gods and goddesses, the syncretism, that is the merging or the melding that concerns Zephaniah, was the way that some in his country had begun to blend the religion of the Assyrians with their own worship of Yahweh. And Zephaniah believed this watering down of the distinctiveness of Jewish practice threatened the nation. Despite the relative calm of his day, Zephaniah warned of the coming day of the Lord. He warned that the coming of God would be a fearful event, not just for the enemies of Israel, but maybe especially for those who considered themselves to be the chosen ones yet who had distorted their own faith. There are prophets among us today. I wish I could be so bold. Prophets who warn this country of its own impending doom. They warn of a self-inflicted destruction born of arrogance and pride, of devotion to military might and financial success, to the strength of markets and a short-sighted narrative called American exceptionalism. As Brueggemann said, Christianity has become part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, part affluence. Our prophets warn of our own kind of syncretism, the blending of national pride and a warped theology, and they call the nation to a security that can only be found in God and in a biblical justice free of divided entanglements and partisan loyalties. You see, we're back to ancient Israel. Before we let the extremists lead us down the road to the theocracy which always spells its own doom, perhaps we could listen today to the prophets of our own age and to those of old. This day, maybe we need to return to Zephaniah, who calls his people to return to God. May it be so. Amen. I had lunch last week with the late Bob Richardson's brother, Paul. We were in Birmingham, Alabama with Paul before we moved to Charlotte, and we knew of the Richardson crew three brothers, all in ministry in one form or another. So when we came to Park Road, we immediately connected with Bob, having known his brother Paul in Birmingham. Bob was a hospital chaplain here and in charge of the chaplaincy program for many years, while brothers Paul and James were church musicians. Church runs deep through their veins. So at lunch last week with Paul, he asked what we had been preaching these days. Oh, just making our way through the minor prophets, I told him. 
And then I read to him a portion of an email that we received last week thanking us for introducing or reintroducing them to these old prophets. And the email said, I have really been enjoying the minor prophets, especially Habakkuk today. And Paul and I agreed that there was no preacher on earth that has ever had an email quite like that. Enjoying especially Habakkuk? It's just not a phrase preachers hear every day. Maybe it's because few of us ever preach from Habakkuk, but still, I feel like we won at preaching last week to get that email. So naturally, Paul asked, well, who's up this week? Zephaniah, I said, I told you last week, if you think that we know all of this stuff about the minor prophets just off the top of our heads, you would be thinking too highly of us. Well, you can't think too highly of Paul Richardson. When I said Zephaniah, without pause or hesitation, as the astounding church musician that he is, he leaned his head back and gazed upwards and said, Oh, Zephaniah, the prophet who speaks of God dancing over us with joy. Really? <laughs> I hadn't read that part yet. I was thinking that Zephaniah's doom and gloom in the first chapter had put a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry was all I had gotten through yet. But if Paul Richardson said that Zephaniah speaks of God dancing over us in joy, then that's what I'm going with in the middle of a hot, humid, mosquito-filled, bad news blazing at every turn, August of 2022. So I did what any respectable preacher these days does. I promptly returned to my office and I googled, God dances over us, dash Zephaniah. Sure enough, articles began to pop up about Zephaniah 317. That's the verse I went back and read after I read through the end of the chapter for you just now. The Lord your God is in your midst. God will rejoice over you with gladness and God will renew you in God's love. God will exult over you with loud singing. But then, of course, the commentaries noted that these closing words of the prophet were difficult to interpret. But that's what I'm going with. In light of that geopolitical scene from Zephaniah's era that matches the situation today, what I needed to hear this week was that God rejoices in us, over us. And that word rejoice can be properly understood as literally spinning around. I even watched some Google videos on whirling dervishes. It's to, to rejoice is to dance, to skip, to leap, to spin around in joy. So Paul Richardson was right 
Another way to translate Zephaniah 3.17 then might be, God will dance over you with gladness. And God will spin over you and leap all around you and skip circles around you while singing loudly over you. We need that good word and that powerful image right about now, I think. When we are covered over with worry, when we are full of despair, when all we hear is bad news, when gloom and doom seem to be the outlook then and now, I'm thankful that Zephaniah ends with this image of a dancing God that is singing over us. If you've ever wondered why we worship, I think we do this right here, right now, every week in response to a God that dances and sings over us. Russ mentioned that someone recently asked if God requires or desires our worship and praise, and if so, then isn't that fairly egocentric of God? As a matter of fact, it seems very ungodlike to need this kind of attention from us, which is a good question. But perhaps our worship isn't a fulfilling of a requirement as much as responding in kind to a God that lavishes us with praise, a God that loves us so intensely as to dance and spin, and sing, and twirl, and leap, and skip all around us, and all over us. The only response to that seems to me to be to return the favor. Now, I will tell you, nobody is more thankful to Bob for getting us through this musical time. Every week, we have to find an organist until Eon gets here from New Zealand. We thought he was coming in March. We thought he was coming in April. We thought he was coming in May. Surely he'd be here by June, but let's put him off till July because he'll be here by then, and then it's going to be October. And so Bob just sees us through and finds a way and makes a path. And so we met our organist today well, I met our organist today. Did you hear the way he played this morning? As if I told him to spice it up a little bit. I did not. I was just grateful to have a warm body sitting at that bench. And we get to the end of that first hymn, and Dan and I looked at each other, and I said, I'm digging that because it fits today. Making music dance in this room that we might be filled with joy as we leave this place and go back out there into a world that's not filled with joy. It's one of the reasons we come here together, right here, right now, every week. Have you noticed that one of the first formative stages of development, the cue for that for an infant is when you smile at the infant and the baby smiles right back at you. And if you grin long enough, 
when that recognition comes on your on their face that you are smiling the proper response at a certain age is for them to smile right back at you when we walk in our back door each day we are greeted by our dog with an exuberance that exclaims, I am so thrilled to see you. I thought you had left me forever and I had almost even forgotten about you. You've been gone so long since first thing this morning, but here you are and I couldn't be more thrilled. And it's only right that you put your things down and pet the dog and say in dog talk right back, hey girl, hey girl, hey girl, hey girl. It's the natural response. Someone reaches out a hand and the natural response is to shake it. Even though COVID has made us a little scared of that. So the pound has returned in mighty force and the natural response is to respond with a pound or a high five. The natural response is to fist bump. And that is why we worship. Because when God rejoices in us and dances over us with singing, we return the favor and praise God, rejoice in God, dance with God. Now, it's difficult for us to accept this about God, that we could be the recipients of such love, such joy, such dancing and singing. Are we actually worthy of such yes yes we are yes you are in all of the ways that we wish we could be more of who God created us to be God dances over us even in all of our self-doubt even in all the places we have tried to change and can't, God rejoices over you in dancing. Even when we get it wrong, God rejoices over us in dancing. The New Interpreter's Bible notes that joy is the key to unlocking the message of God to Israel, to the nations, and to all of us today. The promise expressed here is that all nations, along with God's elect, will with one voice call on the divine name. The heavy sentence of judgment has been commuted thereby making way for a future that is different from the past. Now, there are a lot of religious folks and a lot of folks in general that don't like it when the sentence of judgment is commuted. We would rather everyone get what's coming to them with some good old hellfire and brimstone preaching. But even the hellfire and brimstone preaching of Zephaniah ends with God rejoicing and dancing and singing over us. Perhaps we gather in worship to dance with God a little bit. In order to just get enough energy and goodness infused in us to go back out there singing a new song and dancing a new dance that brings hope and joy and healing into a world that will likely always have a large measure of doom and gloom.
God is worthy of praise. Because we're just responding in kind. Because God has said that we are worthy of praise. And they are worthy of praise. So get your dancing shoes on. Warm up your voice and sing a little. Rejoice in the Lord. Because you can be sure of this, God rejoices in you. In you. Look at you. God rejoices, dances, spins, twirls, leaps, and skips over you. May it be so. Amen.